0: So six weeks ago, I looked ahead at the preaching schedule, and I saw that today I was up to preach on this psalm, Psalm 98. And I remember looking at at it at the time and thinking, goodness, how am I going to get a sermon out of that passage? Which sometimes happens as you look ahead. But today, six weeks ago, honestly feels like a lifetime. A lot has happened since then. And this morning, I look at Psalm 98 with different eyes. Because the Lord knew exactly what we would need to hear in this moment. And today begins a new chapter in the life of our church. Last week, you said goodbye to the Tompkins, and you, their church family, you went above and beyond to celebrate them well. And let me just say that that is no small thing. Because I've talked with many people just in this situation, and they've talked about how they've been in similar situations at churches in their past. And essentially, none of the churches ever went to that length, and most, most churches do nothing at all. And so, the way a church says goodbye says something about that church, because it's an opportunity to love, and you loved well. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize that, you know, it must be said that neither myself nor the elders feel that just because we had a farewell luncheon, that automatically that should bring the necessary closure for you. In some ways, it's just beginning. beginning. It's okay that we take the long view as we consider this transition. This is something that takes time. It's a loss, and it's okay to feel that way. How do you just move on so quickly after 13 years? After all, if we really believe that we're a family, then a pastor is more than a position. And if we are a family and we think of ourselves as such, then might we love each other well by recognizing you know, that people are in different places, people have different experiences, people are processing differently as they consider all that's happened. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that in the coming weeks, let us choose to love one another well by allowing each other the space and the room that each person needs. Let us be quick to listen and to encourage one another. Because in the end, it's okay for somebody to be in a different spot than you are. And it's not good to hurry them along Unity will come as long as we love one another, because we are a family, and we are all in this together. And naturally, you've started to think about what lies ahead. You've started thinking about the future, and you've wondered, where do we go from here? What do we do now? And those are good questions to ask. Those are necessary questions. But how we answer those questions is really just a result of how we answer deeper questions. Who are we? What are we about? What do we want to see happen in the life of this church? It's moments like this that have the opportunity to define us, to be our finest hour, because they bring to question our sense of identity, our sense of purpose, and they really test who we really are. And Psalm 98 this morning speaks most clearly to a people that don't know what their future holds. And they're trying to make sense of their situation. But in that uncertainty, the psalmist teaches us how to do two things. Remembering what God has done and hoping for what God will do. Because this morning we are called to sing a new song. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean whenever the psalmist starts off Psalm 98 by saying, Sing To the Lord, a new song. Well, at first glance, when you look at it, it might seem a little bit weird if you take this psalm way too literally, as though this is uh, simply a worship song requesting for the musicians to write a worship song. All right? So that would be like us on a Sunday morning singing, Matt and Jeremy, please write us a new worship song about all the things that God has done. That's weird for everybody, and that's not what is going on here in this psalm. It's a deeper song. So let's think about it this way. What is the song of Israel? What's their national anthem? What's the song that gives expression to their identity? It's actually not in the psalms. You find it in Exodus 15. It's the song of Moses. Right after Israel was rescued from slavery under Pharaoh and they crossed the Red Sea, Moses sat down. And he wrote that song, and all the people worshipped together because it was the dawning of a new day. And so the song of Moses marks the beginning of a new people, because the crossing of the Red Sea was the salvation event of the Old Testament, where Israel was given a new identity, and this was the song that they sang as a people. And so why would the psalmist be calling for a new one? Why would he say it's time to sing a new song? Well, to understand that, we need to ask a little bit deeper of a question and consider something else. Why does Psalm 98 show up here? Why isn't it Psalm 1? Why isn't it Psalm 150? Why was it placed at this point in the Psalter? Because we don't actually know when Psalm 98 was written. The superscript at the beginning just simply says a psalm. So that's not a lot of help. We don't really know the historical context for when it was written, but we do know that it being placed at this point in the book of Psalms is not random. So keep in mind that the Psalms are written over a thousand year period. Psalm 90 stretches all the way back to Moses. And the last Psalms are placed after they return from Babylon from exile. And so, why does the Psalm show up here? Well, scholars have recognized that the Psalms are actually ordered in a very particular way, it's not random. If you look at it, there's five books that the Psalms are divided up into. And if you closely follow the themes of the Psalms, the Psalms actually tell the story of Israel. The Psalms tell their history as a people. So look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Here you have God establishing his king. It starts off with hopeful expectation, reflecting how David was crowned as king. But then as the psalms move forward, the psalms get darker and darker and darker, all the way through book three, reflecting how after King David, king after king after king after king failed time and time again and turned away from God, all the way up to Psalm 88, which is probably the darkest psalm of all. And it ends book three, or just before the end of book three, reflecting how Israel is taken into exile in Babylon. But then you get to book four, starts with Psalm 90, and the focus begins to change. And what you see is you see the Psalms start to lose hope in human kings, and they start to look back to God as their true king. And so these Psalms begin looking forward in hope to the future that God has for them. They start to look forward in hope that God is not done with them. They speak of how God will not forsake his people. They speak of how God reigns over all things, that he is enthroned above all. They speak of how his steadfast love endures forever. And it was most likely when Israel was in exile, when they were at their lowest point, that they began to arrange the Psalms in this way, to allow the Psalms to tell their story as a people but also they use them to express their hope for something more. And so right in the middle of book four, at this point of transition, right in the middle you have Psalm 98. And so it's in exile. When their city lied in ruin, their temple was destroyed, and they were far away in Babylon, and they faced a completely unknown future. This was when psalms like this began to give expression to their hope that God would do something new. In Psalms like this, they began to express their faith that God was not yet done with his people, and they were ready for a new song, a new song that celebrated a completely new work, a new deliverance, a new restoration, a new song of Moses. And so here we are today. We're in unexpected circumstances that none of you asked for with an unknown future, but know this. God is not done with this church. God is still at work. Perhaps in all of this, he's inviting us and giving us the opportunity to sing a new song. Are we ready for a new song? Are we ready for what God has in store? Psalm 98 teaches us how. It teaches us how to be ready for that new song by calling us to do three things in the rest of the psalm. There's a call to remember, There's a call to worship, and there's a call to imagine. And with each of these three calls, they actually force you to consider whether or not you really believe that God is at work in this whole thing or not. So we have the first three verses that give us a call to remember. So the psalmist says that the Lord has done marvelous things. He has made known his salvation He has remembered his steadfast love. He has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so the psalmist is using the language of the Exodus to remember how God moved most powerfully when Israel was at their most helpless and most desperate. And so their hope for the future was first shaped by their remembrance of the past and how God was faithful to them. Because to remember what God has done is to remember his character, but also his purposes, for them. As we consider our future, we first need to stop and remember what God has done in our past. You know, 13 years ago, this church was less than about 60 people, $50,000 in debt. And unfortunately, we were covered in purple and green carpet. You know, so might we first thank the good Lord for Dwayne Piercy. But since then, God has provided year after year after year at a time in which churches of our size are closing their doors faster than ever. We've never missed budget, we've quintupled in size, and somehow when that storm hit and the hail hit those windows, we managed to take all that money, or Julie managed to take all that money and turn it into an entire building renovation. And yet what we've seen with this church physically, we've seen through our church spiritually A few weeks ago, a few brothers were just sharing during Sunday school in the Healing Path class, talking about how this is the first church that they've ever been in where they finally felt as though there's no unspoken requirement for you to appear as though you have everything together. This is a church where they could finally come and bleed. They could finally come and be who they are. They found a church family, and they felt home. They felt at home. They felt safe. And what a testament that is the people that God has made us thus far. What has he done for us through missions? Over a five-year period since 2012, we've seen $300,000 come in for missions. Just so you know, that doesn't happen ever, not even close. I have talked just, just a few weeks ago. I was at General Assembly. It's the national gathering of our denomination, I was talking with the, uh, one of the leaders of MTW, which is our denominations, uh, he's a leader in our denominations missions arm. And he just said, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. That, my friend, is a work of God. If you haven't been here long enough to know, for, just for example, in one year, the fundraising goal that we had was $80,000. And that specific year, we were half the size we are now and that $80,000 was the equivalent of a, of a third of our overall church operating budget. I still look back on that and think, what were we thinking? It's crazy. And yet $90,000 came in. And on top of that, we had our biggest giving year ever with the biggest surplus that we'd ever had. Based on the time, right now, there are kids going to bed in India in clothes that you provided in a bed that you provided, in a house that you provided. They eat all their meals prepared out of a kitchen that you provided. And there's thousands of people that will wake up in a few hours, thousands. And they will go and they will get clean, fresh water that you provided. And they will hear a pastor talk to them the entire time that they're waiting in line to get water about living water. And then when the time comes, they will gather in church buildings that you provided. Why? Because God has been at work and used us. And whenever we look back over our history, do we just simply see some people and events and some numbers? Or do we actually see the steadfast love and faithfulness of God? Do we see him inviting us into his work and his purposes year after year after year? Because the call to remember is about more than memories. It's about not misplacing credit. It's about remembering that if God's goodness was true in the past, it's going to be true tomorrow. He is still at work. And if we as a church forget our past and we don't remember what God has done, then you can be sure that we will have a future that's not worth remembering either. Because in the end, it is not God that's our focus. It's not God that's our anchor. And it's not God that's our one true desire. God has been at work, and he will continue to work, because God is not through with Rockwall Press. And secondly, there's a call to worship. In verses 4 through 6, the psalmist says to make a joyful noise and calls for the musicians to fill their hands with their instruments. And it's a rallying cry to unite God's people together in worship. That might seem normal for the psalms, right? Because it's worship songs, But let's look at it a little bit deeper than that because we need this call to worship, especially in seasons of uncertainty. Why? Because the call to worship challenges us to recognize that our worship cannot be circumstantial. That whenever you're in a difficult, unknown, hard situation, if you can't worship then, then that thing that you're doing whenever life is good probably isn't actual, real worship, it's something else. It's in these moments where our worship is genuine, and this call to worship challenges us to recognize that our worship cannot have qualifiers, cannot have disclaimers, and there can be no strings attached. And might that be true of us, that we would be united in worship? And again, this is more than just your request for the musicians to play some music and sing some songs. It's a call to action. It's a call to worship in its truest form which is you becoming a living sacrifice. It's a call for you to fill your hands with your gifts, your talents, and your abilities and offer them in worship and in service to God. And so I would ask you this morning, would you answer that call? Are you willing to recommit yourself to the worship of this church and this body? If you're serving, would you double down? If you're not serving, would you jump in? Honestly, one of the most humbling things about these last, uh, one of the most encouraging and humbling things about the last month is simply the number of people that have offered to help. They've simply made themselves available to do whatever needed to be done, to bear whatever burden, to carry whatever load. And that's humbling to see people's commitment to the worship of this church. You know, before we ever left the canoe trip, David Kravitz, Jerry DeVisser, and Kevin Meyer asked me multiple times to take over man time. And within a few days, I got an email where they had already met and they had a long list of about 20 fellowship events and Bible studies and prayer breakfast that they want to do and roll out before you. And they're hungry for the fellowship that we have together. Why? Because they're ready to sing a new song. We have an informational meeting coming up with Pat Corman about our partnership with the Crisis Pregnancy Center. And to hear her talk, she's not very tall, but she just fills the space very quickly because she's very passionate about doing and meeting these needs and uniting us together to meet those needs. Why? Because she's ready to sing a new song. This Friday, our India team's going to be getting together, and they're excited to go. They're ready to continue God's work through us, and they're ready to sing a new song. We have the opportunity as a church to become what we're always meant to be, a unified, singular, living sacrifice that offers our worship through our service to God. Let us never be willing to put worship on pause. Lastly, there's a call to imagine. If you look at verses 7 through 9, you'll notice that the psalmist doesn't just envision Israel worshiping God as though that's their own particular right or privilege. Instead, the psalmist imagines it being a global affair that encompasses all of creation. And so he imagines a world where everything bows before the Lord and he looks forward to that day. Now, it's hard to have that kind of imagination in the uncertainty of exile. That's hard. But the source for that kind of hope and imagination for the future, again, comes through remembering how God works. The psalmist remembers that that his God is the God that does the unimaginable. Think about, again, the exodus, the call to remember what God has done. Think about Israel at the Red Sea. They're completely trapped, and they're stuck between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, two immovable objects. They have no weapons. They have no plan. They have no way out and nowhere to go and no idea what to do. And they cry out to Moses, and Moses simply says to them, "'You have nothing to do but to be still and to be silent.'" For the Lord your God will fight for you. And when they went to bed that night, nobody had a clue or could have possibly imagined what God was going to do. That the next day, they would walk right through the heart of the sea. So, for the psalmist, his hopes for the future are built on the knowledge that God does the unimaginable to bring about his purposes. God doing the unimaginable is how the whole party got started in the first place. He takes Sarah with the barren womb and gives her a baby. A burning bush, ten plagues, crossing of the Red Sea, time after time after time, God does the unimaginable because of his commitment to his promises and to his people. And quite frankly, if we go one step further, even the psalmist had no idea of how God would answer his people's desire for a new song. He had no idea that God would provide an answer to the hopes of his people with the giving of Jesus. That God would become man and secure a future and a hope that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined. So when the Bible calls us to remember what God has done, it's also a call to imagine. And that confronts us with the question, do you want more? Do you want more? What do we really want? Because there's nothing about the biblical story that should allow us to settle for any small imagination for what God wants to do. There is absolutely zero excuse for small requests, because now is the time for us to think about our future. But let's not think about it as though we serve some sort of boring God and simply offer Him our boring hopes and our boring expectations and boring ideas, and we simply yawn our way through the faith. Now is the time to celebrate what God has done and to continue to ask for more, not less, for us, for our community, For the world around us so that the sea would roar, the rivers clap their hands, and the hills sing for joy. And what might we see if we begin to have that imagination together? Because regardless of circumstance, that's the people that we are called to be. So let us not settle for $300,000 for missions. Let's pray for millions that would blanket the gospel all over the deep forest. Let's pray that the gospel would go out into our community and those women at the Crisis Pregnancy Center might actually find a family for the first time. Where all of our neighbors that are drowning in a sea of suburban trivialities might actually find real purpose and real hope. That we'd actually go across the street and really reach out to the poorest part of this community that were put in our backyard. And what of our community where we can grow in relationships with one another and we can really pray for something that goes against all the statistics that I'm tired of hearing of how the church is completely worthless, the church is no longer relevant, and perhaps it's because the church has lost its imagination. And we can be a place that recognizes we serve an unimaginable God. And we can pray for addictions to be broken here, marriages to be healed here, families to be restored here. And all of those are things that we have to ask for. All of those things are things that we have to imagine and ask for God's glory to be revealed among us. And maybe everything we've experienced thus far as a church is simply just scratching the surface and an invitation to ask for more. And the best part is that we get to do all of that together. And to be together and to be united in that endeavor is a very powerful thing. You know, the week of the canoe trip was a really long week. If you wanna know when I found out, I found out the Saturday before you did, June 1, about Ryan's resignation. It was a long week, you know, obviously dealing with all of that, but also just the sheer amount of work that goes into getting everybody together and getting everything prepared for the canoe trip. And I think on Wednesday, the day before we left, I think it was one of those weeks where, you know, I'd taken like 25 phone calls before 10 a.m., you know, just coming every which direction. And then my favorite phone call was when Wade called me and said, yeah, our canoe outfitter that we have our reservations through, He canceled our canoe order uh, because the river was too high, and so we can't go canoeing. So we're like, oh, perfect timing, you know? And so we have to figure it out, and we have to work through it, and we get everything settled. And finally, Thursday comes, and everybody gathers here outside. We pray, and we head to Possum Kingdom. And by the time everybody got there, you know, the news had been uh, sent out to the church about Ryan's resignation. So obviously there were some conversations. Everyone was kind, and everyone was... It was just a time to to talk and process together, and we got there around lunchtime as conversations were happening and kids were playing, and we we had lunch, and then we just sat down, and people were setting up tents, you know, just a commitment to a nice weekend together. And so it started to sprinkle a little bit. And I'm like, it's okay. I checked the weather all week, and I checked it this morning. There's only a 20% chance that it's going to rain. And my friends, we got the full 20%. Of that forecast, all right? So we're sitting there, and it starts to sprinkle, and it starts to sprinkle pretty good, and some people go to check on their stuff to make sure nothing's sitting out. And Conrad Spann and I are just sitting there having a conversation, and it really kind of started to pick up. And so I said, hey, would you help me put, I'm excited about this, would you help me put up my new canopy that I got at Costco? You know, because we had this old rickety canopy that we used for way too long. We finally put it out of its misery, and we got a new canopy with the neat 60-square-foot extension on it. And I said, here we go. So we went, we grabbed it, we set it up as it was still sprinkling, you know, just ready to gather everyone under my new little oasis that I got for everybody. And so we had sat there for about five minutes, and then somebody says, oh, my. And they look back behind us, and we kind of, everybody turns in slow motion and we just see this wall of water coming across the lake in this storm. And all of a sudden, like the wrath of God is going to be here in about 10 seconds. And it's in that moment that somebody yells in slow motion, run, you know. And, and so everybody just like chairs are flying and people are kind of just going to take, you know, take care of business. And so right then the wind just picks up and it just blows right through the camp. And all of a sudden that water hits and it just comes down in a downpour. And so the only thing that we can do is swindle, Chef Kenny, and myself. We each grab a corner of that precious canopy and we hold it down because it's starting to get blown away and we don't want it to get blown away. And so as we're holding on to that, everything else is just being completely blown over. All of our food that was out has gone. You know, uh, bus tubs, tables. We had 40, 50 mile an hour wind gusts. It was pretty, pretty powerful wind. And so I don't know if we were holding on to the canopy or holding on to it for dear life. But either way, as that was going on, Meanwhile, you know, down by the lake, Wes Barnes is winning the Dad of the Year Award because he's with, uh, he's with his girls in his van, and he sees that their tent blows out into the lake, completely pulled it out of the ground, and it's out in the water. So he's like, I got to go get it. And they're like, Daddy, no. You know, so he gets out, slams the car door shut, runs out there and grabs it. But as the wind was so heavy that he couldn't actually pull it, pull it very far onto land. And so he did the only thing that a man can do in that moment is he just completely lays down on the tent to make sure it doesn't blow blow away. And that's how he rode out the storm. And so then back up by the canopy, I'm sitting there holding on to it, and I look over at my truck, and my window's down. And then I look over at my, my tent, and it is completely blown over, about 20 feet away from where it was, and all my stuff is wet. And at this point, I just hold on to it, thinking to myself, this could not get any worse. Turns out I was wrong. Because right then a huge gust of wind comes through and most of the canopy was behind me and it was so strong, it broke all the roof supports on the canopy and it just goes, wham, right into my back. And so I am now a human canopy sandwich and all of these metal bars are like digging into my back. So now physical pain is being introduced into the canoe trip, all right? And evidently, I'm looking for some help here, but all I get is hearing Ryan Swindle laughing hysterically because evidently, Him holding on to the other corner, he thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. And when Ryan really gets laughing, he reaches this, like, next-level octave. So think, so think witches cackle, okay? And so whenever he gets to laughing like that, I can't stop laughing. And so hearing him laugh, I start laughing too. And we rode out that entire rest of the storm laughing hysterically. And we did it together. And then after that, Brian Hartger gets out and he goes, boys... That was awesome I had a f- because I had a front row seat to that whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, guys start to come back to the camp and they start, we start to talk and we start to laugh about everything that just happened and the sun came out. And then we realized that, you know, everybody started sharing stories of how they rode out the storm and how Jerry and David had 15 kids in their camper playing a game of Uno, you know, and then guys started to slowly put the camp back together and we all did it together. We got everything back in order, and I looked over at one point, and somebody would set up my tent. I still don't even know who it was. And we did it together. And then the next day, we got up, and David and Randy were the heroes of the day because they drove those kids out on the lake on those boats all day long. And at the end of it, every kid got out, and they said, Best canoe trip ever. And I was talking with Brian Harger at the end of the trip, and he said, You know what? He said, in the end, I think this canoe trip was going to be a perfect microcosm for what we see happen in the church. He said, nobody saw that storm coming, and nobody was really ready for it. But we rallied together. Nobody left. Nobody went anywhere. And it ended up being far better than we could have possibly imagined. I think he's right. Together, let us remember what God has done Let us worship and fill our hands with service. Let us imagine what God can do, and in that, together, we will sing a new song. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for storms. We thank you that we have one another in those storms. And we thank you that you do not leave us or forsake us in the midst of those storms. The only man this church belongs to is Jesus Christ, and we confess that this morning. You are the one who writes our stories, you write our pleasure, you write our pain. We trust in your sovereignty and the fullness of your authority and the goodness with which you write our stories. We humbly come before you and we ask that you would meet us at your table. We ask that you would meet each person where they are at this morning we ask that to the one who is heavy that you would lift their head. We ask to the one who is sorrowful that you would bring joy. To the one who is distracted, you would focus their mind upon you. To the one that feels guilt and shame, you would remind them that your love brings freedom and hope and joy. And all these things we gather at your table this morning as the one people and the one family that you've called us to be. And we ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and everybody said, Amen.